1 through 6. We've been going through uh, the life of David, and so we are now at the very end of 1 Samuel. So if you can turn there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me or on the monitors uh, around the room. Let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against the Ziklag. They had overcome the Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also have been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, we have a lot of announcements this morning. Um, if you would, listen up. But I'm excited because I feel like each one really connects to this idea of pursuit. On the front of your bulletins, it says pursuit. We've been talking about uh, pursuing our personal relationship with the Lord. And that often plays out in our relationship uh, with one another and with the church. So our first, oh, before I do that, if you're new, I do love you. I didn't mean to skip you. Uh, If you're new or you're visiting or you for some reason have not given us your information yet, in the seat in front of you or in the seat back in front of you, there should be one of these cards uh, that you can fill out your information so that we can, that your word would go forth today, that we would hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be your servant, to be your mouthpiece. Lord, I do not take this responsibility lightly, Lord, and so I pray that you would move before me, Lord. I pray that you would touch our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, I pray that you would remove any distractions that we might have that would keep us, Lord, from hearing from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure when we forgot that we were giants. We are so much more than the jobs and childhood fears we chain ourselves to. Believe me. These are the words of Joshua Bennett, a spoken word poet from New York City. There is something striking about these words. Every time I hear them, something inside of me is moved, probably because I believe them to be true. If there could ever be a common language that we would be able to learn, I think the first question that we would ask together is this. Is there more? Not more to consume or more to attain, but is there more to who we are? More to who we are? were meant to be. There is a sort of discontentment that most of us experience. A strange discomfort knowing that there has to be more to life than a punch-in, punch-out existence. This life has to mean more than this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
separated light from the dark, the waters from the skies, and the seas from the lands. He planted trees and gardens and created every living thing in the water, in the air, and in the land. And after he created this incredible world, God said, let us make man in our image. And he created male and female together. And then he blessed them and he set them over all creation. He designated them for the special privilege of being his representatives over his creation. He called them to rule as his image bearers. God, the almighty creator, the king of kings, has set us as humanity to be his many kings and queens over his earth. We receive this task of representing his interests on earth. But somewhere along the way, we forgot. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that we were more, not, not giants, but kings and queens. What we were made to be and do isn't often what our lives consist of. Like our first ancestors, it isn't long before we forget the words of our king and try to rule according to our own design according to our own interests. What is it that made us forget who we are and what we are called to do? Was it our desire to reject God and to live according to our own laws and our own standards? Was it that we ignored the one who created us, the one who reigns over all creation? The life lived outside relationship with our Creator is not life at all. It's less than what we were created for. Or maybe we forgot what it meant to be uh, who we've been called to be because of stress and difficulties. Perhaps it was the frustration of circumstances that didn't go our way that caused us to forget. Maybe it was the difficulty that takes us by the hand into a place where God cannot exist whispers in our ear, if God really loved you, then you wouldn't be experiencing so much pain and difficulty. Doubt creeps in, disbelief leads us where what we are and what we were meant to be is a long lost memory. How can we find our way back to remembering who we are and what we were meant to do? Well, I think the answer is in stories stories like the ones that we've been going through during this series. You see, stories shape us. They help us. They remind us of our history so that we can be able to know how we ought to live. Stories like these where David is in the wilderness, where he is learning to be the, the king that God called him to be. These stories become our stories and they teach us how to be the men and women God has called us to be. So this morning I'd like us to hear from one of these stories, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. If you haven't turned there yet, would you turn and meet me there in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. I won't be reading this story, but I will be retelling it. And so I want you to follow along in 1 Samuel, chapter 30. Much time has passed since we last met David 
in the wilderness. It's only been a week since we last met him, but yet so much has taken place in that time. When we last left David, he was in Maon, learning the way of wisdom from Abigail. But in our absence, much has taken place. After Nabal's death, Abigail, his widow, became his wife. Now, one of the difficulties of reading these Old Testament passages is that whenever we're reading these stories carefully, we, we come up with questions that are difficult to resolve. There's no hiding from it, but you already know, as you heard from the scripture passage this morning, that Abigail wasn't David's first wife. If you remember earlier in the narrative, David had already married Michael, Saul's daughter. And when he met Abigail, he had already taken a second wife, Ahinoam, of Jezreel. Well, Saul had given away Michael, and now David has two wives. And there's an uncomfortable question that settles in, and we ask, how do we resolve this? How do we resolve the fact that this anointed king, this great man, was married to more than one woman? Well, the story in particular isn't here to answer that question, but what we see in the scriptures is that whenever we have examples of polygamy, broken family relationships aren't far to follow. From Abraham to Samuel's father to David to Solomon, all all along the way we see that God's intention was for one man and one woman to be joined together as one. Now, we're not allowed to because of time to give more thought to this, but I just want to sort of clear the air and and, and recognize that this is David's family situation. He now has two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, because Michael, his former wife, had been given away to another man by Saul. Saul has also been quite busy since the last time we saw him. A few weeks ago, if you remember, Josh preached this message where David spared Saul's life. But it wasn't long before Saul again decided to pursue David and try to kill him. History repeats itself and Saul does the same thing again and David is merciful yet again and he spares Saul's life. He doesn't kill him. Well, after this... David still fears for his life, and so he continues to be on the move, on the run. If a man tries to kill you once, well, you should stay out of his path. But if a man tries to kill you two and three times, you better get out of Dodge. And that's what David does. He says to himself, if I stay here, Saul is going to kill me. You know, Israel is a small country ever been there, you'd realize how small this place really is. And as David is experiencing this hardship, he feels the boundaries of this country collapse around him. The space is getting smaller and smaller as as he fears for his life against Saul. So he does the unthinkable. He goes further south into the land of the Philistines. He lives there. And over the chapters 27 and 29, we realize what David was doing in the land of the Philistines. See, he had met this king, Achish, and they became friends. They became partners. And they interacted together, and at some point, David said to him, Listen, if 
you have found favor, if I have found favor in your eyes, would you give me a portion of land to live? So that I don't have to bother you by living here in your presence. Just give me a small bit of land. So Akish does what he asked him, and he gives him this place called Ziklag. Helps to explain a little bit of why David is where he is. But one of the things that David is doing during this time is that he's not staying put there in Ziklag. It's sort of a, uh, a home base for him because all the, all the time that he is there, he and his men are going up and down the country and they're basically terrorizing the enemies of the people of God. They're raiding their villages. They're taking all that they own and they're killing the enemies of God. At some point as they're traveling up and down this country, David meets up again with Achish. Achish is preparing to go to war, to battle against Saul. But because of his relationship, because of his history, the other kings say, David doesn't belong here. We should send him back the way he came. So Achish does. He sends him back to Ziglag out of fear that perhaps David would turn against them and attack them while they are attacking Saul. That brings us to chapter 30, the book of 1 Samuel. David and his men are traveling now a three days journey from Apic, where Achish was, to Ziklag, their temporary home. I can only imagine how anxious the men had become by the time the third day came, longing to see their wives and their children. You know, a few years ago, some of you remember that Pastor Eric Rivera and I went to Liberia for a pastor's conference. I'll never forget our return flight home. Both he and I were so anxious to get home. Despite how successful the trip was, we were anxious to see our families. We missed our wives. He missed his children. And I imagine that's what David and his men felt like. They longed to be reunited with their families, with their wives, and with their children. I can't imagine the horror that they experienced when they approached the town of Ziklag. Instead of arriving to the open arms of their families, they were greeted by the stench of smoke and ashes. I could almost hear the worried men calling for their wives, calling for their children, only to hear nothing echo back. It was like a terrible nightmare that every man could not awaken from. The men wept. Several of them fell to their knees as they cried for their missing families. And by now it had become obvious that whoever raided their homes had taken their families with them. There were no bodies, no evidence of death. So the men cried until they had no more strength trying to rid themselves of thinking about what could be happening to their families at this very moment. Every man was affected by this great tragedy. And there was no consoling them. Their pain and grief quickly turned to anger and bitterness, and most of the men began to mutter to themselves, if only we hadn't joined David, our families would be safe in our arms today. 
pointing the finger at David could heal their broken hearts. Their voices grew stronger and stronger as they thought together of stoning David. Not only was David mourning the loss of his own family, but now he had to endure listening to the voices of his men plot his death. What does a person do in that kind of situation? What does one do when circumstances align themselves in such a way to make you feel trapped? What do you do when pain is coupled with fear and danger? What David does next is both startling and instructive. At the end of verse 6, our passage reads that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David had no other recourse. He had come to the place of realization that only the saving grace of God could save him. So he found courage. He found strength. Not in himself, but in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Abiathar is the only priest remaining in Israel. A few chapters ago, the maniac Saul, in his anger trying to find David, decides that perhaps the priests are hiding him. So he goes to the place where the priests congregated, the city where they lived, and he said to them, You are plotting against me. You are keeping David from me. When they refused to tell him where David was, he drew out his sword and he killed them all. Every single one of them. Except for one man, Abiathar, who was able to flee from this scene and was able to take with him the ephod and joined himself with David. Now, the ephod is this garment. It's described for us in the book of Exodus. Basically, it's this garment that one wears when one is trying to seek the counsel of God. Priests would wear this when they were looking for direction, when they were seeking what God wanted them to do. So David says, bring that ephod to me, because I'm going to consult not unintentional that this story of David seeking after God is sandwiched between two episodes of of Saul's fall. See, in chapter 29 and chapter 31, we have the end of Saul's life. In chapter 29, Saul is also at a point of crisis. He is in serious need, trying to hear from God, trying to, to find counsel. But there are no priests for him to consult because he's killed them all. There's no Samuel to talk to because Samuel has rejected him and he has also died. And Saul has no real relationship with God, so he cannot consult him in his own strength. Saul does the unthinkable and he goes and seeks a witch to tell him what he ought to do. Now it's interesting that the author is intentionally comparing here Saul and David. See, Saul is in need of help and he consults a witch, something that is strictly forbidden in the law of God. 
David needs help, and he consults God. And he hears from him. It's a practice that is, that is encouraged in the book of the law. Here you have two extreme examples. One man is unfit to be king, to be the servant of God. Another man is fit to be king because he is playing the part by strengthening himself in the Lord and seeking God's help for direction, for guidance. These two men hear from God. Saul, through this witch, is able to conjure up the ghost of Samuel. And Samuel says to him, all is lost. You will go into battle with the Philistines and you and your sons will die. David hears from God and he says, all that was lost will be recovered. You and your families will return safely back to where you are. Two men completely opposed to one another. With two completely different directions instructing us in what is the way of the Lord. So David hears from God. He is encouraged to continue doing he is supposed to do. He asks God, should I pursue seeking after my families? And God responds and says, yes, pursue, for you will find what you are looking for. So David went, as the Lord instructed him, with the 600 men that were with him to rescue their families. These men are tired. They had just come from a three-day journey. They had just spent all of their day crying for their families. They were emotionally spent. So when they come to a certain point, a particular brook, 200 of the men cannot go any further. They're exhausted. So David continues on this journey with only two-thirds of his men, hoping desperately to find something that they don't even know what they're looking for. You and I, as readers of this story, we know who the culprits are, but David and his men have no idea who or what they're looking for. I mean, David and his men had spent all of their time raiding all of these villages. They had all sorts of enemies. Even Saul was an enemy of David. Who was it that came into their homes and had taken all that they owned? David had no idea. And so they're going into this desert, into this open country, hoping that somehow they would find something to point them in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, as if to say, as if to point them in the right direction, as if to say the Lord is on this journey, it just so happens that they meet a young man who is an Egyptian. Now keep this in mind. This was before the time of Google Maps. This was before the time of iPhones and Find My Friends. All of these things were not available to David and his men. They were literally going out into the open country, going out into the middle of nowhere, hoping to find the right direction. Now, I've been going to this church for a number of years. Brianna was making fun of me this morning because... I went down the wrong staircase trying to find the men's bathroom. I've been down there a dozen times. And yet I had no idea where I was going. Can you imagine if I was the one trying to find my family in the middle of the desert? Be hopeless. And yet here it just so happened that David and his men come upon a young man. 
Now they still don't know who this man is. And yet out of their kindness, they helped the man. This man was half dead. He, he could barely move. His lips were dried out. So David and his men gave him food. And he ate it. They gave him water and he ate it. They gave him sweet cakes and raisins. And all of a sudden the color began to come back to his face. David asked the man, where do you come from? Who do you belong to? The young man started a story. He said, well, I'm an Egyptian. I belong to an Amalekite. I'm his servant. And we have been going around all of these villages and we've been taking and raiding all of these things and we've been taking all of all that they have. We've gone to the Negev of the Cherethites and we've gone to the road that belongs to Judah. We went to the Negev of, of Caleb. Then we came upon a city called Ziklag. We burned it to the ground. You can imagine this. They just so happened in the middle of nowhere to find a young man. They, they bring him back to health. And he is the one who is a witness to everything that has happened. David immediately says, can you take me to this band? Can you take me to where these men are? The servant says, I'll take you, but you have to swear to God that you will not hurt me, nor will you hand me over to my servant. So we find out that David went with this Egyptian, David and his men. In verse 16 it says, When he had brought him down, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread over all the land eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. It was a celebration. It was party time for all that they had accomplished against their unsuspecting victims. But you and I know what these men did it. You and I know that these unsuspecting victims are waiting for them. They're looking for them, and they found them. Like a football player who's dancing his way into the end zone, these Amalekites are about to drop the ball on the one-yard line. So unaware and unprepared, these dancing Amalekites must have been stunned when they saw David and his men come out from their cover too full from their meat and too full from their wine. I can imagine the Amalekites falling over themselves, trying to escape David's sword. The Bible says that for more than eight hours, David and his men slaughtered their enemies. Not one man was spared, except for a few young men who got on their camels and fled. That was it. Just as the Lord had said, all the Amalekites, all that the Amalekites had taken was recovered. And most especially, their families, their wives, and their children. Nothing was missing. From the youngest daughter to the oldest son, riches or livestock, everything that was taken from them was rescued by the hand of David. But David and his men weren't the only victims of these raids. You see, when they came upon the Amalekites, they noticed that there was all sorts of things that didn't belong to them. There were these animals, this great number of livestock. And the men were so excited. 
They were so overjoyed by what the Lord had done but, uh, through the hand of David that they said, this is David's spoil. All the extra stuff that we find, that belongs to David. These men who not long ago were ready to pick up stones to kill David were now saying, whatever we found, that belongs to David. So these men and David, they returned back the way they came. And in verse 21 it says, Then David came to the hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to him, he greeted them. To greet them is not simply to say hello. It's not to say, uh, hey, how's it going? Long time no see. David is genuinely interested in their well-being. He's asking them, how are you? How is your spirit? Have you been revived? And he shows them what they were able to retrieve, their families. And as this moment of joy is going on, it is all of a sudden interrupted by men who have different concerns. There were some wicked men in this group, and they said, These men didn't earn any of the sport. Let each man take back his family, and that is it. They don't deserve our David said to them, you shall not do this. With what the Lord has given us, you shall not keep it from your brothers. He has preserved us. He has given into our hand the band that came against us. Now one of the questions that we have to ask is, who was responsible for the victory? Throughout the narrative, the author misdirects us by highlighting David as the victor. Look at verse 17. And David struck down from twilight. Look at verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Verse 19. David brought back all. Verse 20. David also captured all the flocks and herds. Even the men with him had mistaken this work for David's work. And they said, this belongs to David. This is David's spoil. Then David corrects them all. He says, I didn't earn this spoil. We didn't earn this spoil. How could you say that we are more deserving of what God has given us? Then he does something that is only fitting for a king. David sets a new rule of the land. He creates a new law that says that whomever is with us, whether he has gone into battle or whether he has stayed back to secure the baggage, all are deserving, all are equal to, to, to receive the blessing from God. It's a bit strange that David, a man who's on the run, is able to establish something that has continued to this day, the author says. This has become a law in all of Israel. You see, the author knows and has seen what David has yet to see, that this man is a king in the making. David continues to act kindly and generously with the Lord's blessing. When he came back to the place where they had been residing, he sends all of the, all of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, the men who had been kind to David, men who had, who had kept him safe, safe, who had let him stay with them during his time of exile. So he shares this with them. He repays their kindness. But David is doing something even 
even greater with this act of kindness. He's not just paying back a favor. David is doing something in that he is proclaiming the Lord's victory over their enemies. See, David is doing what good kings do. He is announcing the Lord's victory over their enemies, and he is generously sharing the Lord's blessing. He is saying, here, take and receive what the Lord has given to all of us. See, David is a servant of God. He is the servant of God who is giving back to those who are taken captive. He is bringing liberty to those who have been oppressed. Does that sound familiar? reminds me of Jesus when he stood in the synagogue and he opened the scroll and he read where it said, the Lord has anointed me. I've come to preach good news to those who are poor, those who are oppressed. I am to proclaim the good favor of our Lord. David is fulfilling his role as a servant of God. And by doing this, he is foreshadowing the servant of the Lord, Jesus, who has come to bring freedom to the captives. of the book of 1 Samuel has been a, an exercise of teaching us that God is developing this man to be this fitting servant. See, back all the way in creation, God established us as his, as his children, as his servants. Yet we failed him, but God had established the king to be his servant to be the one who is able to look to him for strength, to be the one who is able to proclaim this good news, to to share in in God's blessing, to invite others to partake in the goodness of God. David was doing just that. David was exercising his role as the fitting king of Israel. One of the questions that we have to ask as we are ending our time is, well, what does the story have to do with you and I? We're not kings. We're not queens of a particular nation. But you and I have been called as servants of the living God. If any of us have placed our faith in Jesus, we have been made co-heirs with Christ. We have been invited to participate in what God is doing. And we can learn from this story in seeing that those of us who are called servants of God have two responsibilities. First and foremost, our strength comes from God himself. No matter what difficulty we're facing, no matter what struggles may come our way, our strength comes from the Lord. And you and I both know that all sorts of difficult circumstances come before us. We've got finances that won't pay the bills. We've got broken families. We've got bad health. All of these things come against us, and yet we learn that as servants of the living God, we can sing with David, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. You and I are servants of the living God. But there's a second responsibility that you and I have as servants of this living God. You see, you and I have been called to, to be these many kings and queens to be representatives of what God is doing on this earth. There's something that you and I must do. 
just as David was proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, the good news of all that the Lord had done, you and I have been called to do the same. God is doing an incredible work in our midst. And we are witnesses to that fact. All of us, all of our changed lives, those of us who have professed that Christ is our Savior, have a particular story to tell. And that story is about the goodness of God who has saved us, who has freed us, who has redeemed us. If we are servants of the living God, we must stand firm and proclaim this story. We must tell others. We must invite them to participate in this goodness, to say, look at all that God has done. Look at God's work. And in doing that, we not only profess that with our mouths, but we do that with our lives. See, David had taken what was given to him, and he confessed that this all belonged to God. And he gave it to others to partake. Whenever you and I are like the wicked men, say, no, this belongs to me. This is mine. This is my money, my time, my talent. Whenever we do these things, We are failing to be the servants that God has called us to be. See, in freely giving what God has given, we are not only professing that God is the giver of those things, but we are inviting others to see that God is good. We're inviting others to participate in all that God has redeemed us from, all that God has gifted us with. You and I have been called to be servants, living It says, I don't know when we forgot that we were meant for more. I don't know when that was. But what I do know is that you and I have been called to be servants of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the story. We thank you for all that you are calling us to be, Lord. I pray that you would help us this day to to serve you, Lord, the way that you have called us to live. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. Help us to walk in your ways and to be encouraged, Lord, by all that you're doing. Help us, Lord, to proclaim your goodness as a church. Lord, I pray that Good News Bible Church would be a place of proclamation, that our lives would, would, would serve as witnesses to all that you're doing in this world. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.